Well, hey everybody, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. And a special welcome to those of you who are joining me live. It's Wednesday, May 12th, and I appreciate you joining me and uh, appreciate Integral Life for providing this live portal to its site and to Integral Global on Facebook and to YouTube Live as well. So what I do here is, you know, basically look at new emergence in culture and consciousness. I often think this is my sort of orienting principle is that I use integral theory to understand current events and use current events to understand integral theory. And so I just wanted to, you know, look at a few stories that have hit my attention in the last week. The first one is a article that was in the New York Times on Monday, and it is on the front page. So big deal, it's a big deal to get on the front page of the New York Times. And the title of the article is, Psychedelics are poised to reshape psychiatry. And they're talking about this new proliferation of the use of psychedelics with therapy in treating things like PTSD and depression and so forth. They wrote uh, about the first phase three clinical study of ecstasy, which is MDMA. And they found that that drug paired with counseling brought marked relief to patients with severe PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder. And this was just weeks after a New England Journal of Medicine study highlighted the benefits of treating depression with psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, and how this excited scientists, psychotherapists, and entrepreneurs in the rapidly expanding field of psychedelic medicine. And it's a big, long article, and they talk about all the moves in culture and how Oregon has approved uh, psychedelics, or at least magic mushrooms, for therapy. And Denver and other cities have officially decriminalized it, but that it is de facto decriminalized, at least federally, and that the Department of Justice has taken a hands-off approach. So, wow, I, I think this is really significant in the evolution of humanity. <laughs> I think psychedelics have been very important in the evolution of humanity. And in fact, there's uh, an interesting theory. I, I remember being struck by it back, I think it was the 80s in a book called Coming of Age in the Milky Way, written by uh, scientist Timothy Ferris, where he presented the theory that mushroom spores, uh, which are actually so small, they can actually move through outer space, that they were seeded into the universe and fell to earth and they created magic mushrooms. And these are the things that proto-humans ate to wake up to being conscious and self-conscious. And, you know, I don't know about that, but certainly indigenous uh, people for millennia have used psychedelics as, as ways of accessing wisdom. And so that's what we're doing here too. And a couple insights, I think, that Integral helps us to have around this phenomena. And the first one is that 
Psychedelics help us to more stably experience absolute reality. And that's an important thing because we live, this is a principle that is expounded on in virtually every religion. I don't know one that doesn't, that there's a world beyond the, our world of form, that there's, that there's an absolute reality as well as a relative reality and that they are intertwingled but they are both online. And relative reality is the world of form. It's the world of time and space. It's the world we recognize, the world we live in, the world of being a subject in a world of objects. And even the quadrant map is in aqua theory is a map of relative reality. The interior quadrants are also part of time and space. That is thought and consciousness and culture. These are non-material, but they are form. They are non-material form. So they're still on the relative side of the street. Absolute reality, which is what uh, psychedelics give us a stable, predictable access to. Absolute reality is the reality out of which or within which relative reality arises. And it is described as oneness or Godhead. It's often paradoxical. It's empty and full, emptiness and fullness. It's cessation of all things, as well as infinite creativity. You can't get there with words. You know, words and thought are limited to relative reality. But we can get there in our experience. As I said a minute ago, absolute reality and relative reality are both fully online at the same time, all the time. And we can feel it. We have access to it. We have sparks, insights. Sometimes the whole relative reality uh, matrix sort of, uh, we have a chasm, we have a, the veil lifts and we can, you know, feel into absolute reality and its qualities. And this is the religious view that I think is uh, that, that, you know, all hum humans till modernity bought into is that this absolute reality is intelligent. There's a source of wisdom there. It's loving in the sense that we belong there, that it feels like home, that it is the, an ultimate relaxation, and that it is creative. And I guess the best word is it's aware. It's awareness itself. And it's the part of us that doesn't ever change. There's nothing can hurt it. It's eternal and infinite. And eternal not in the sense of millions and millions of years and billions, but eternal in the sense of being outside of time. And infinite, not in the sense of bazillions and bazillions of miles, but infinite in the sense of beyond space. It's what space arises in. So, you know, this is, this is really, you know, feeling into this is the essence of the spiritual path. And um, it, it's interesting that Timothy Ferris um, theory, because in a way, what if he's right, mushrooms woke prehumans into relative reality. 
essentially. We, that was the fall from paradise is when we became self-conscious and realized we're a subject in the world of objects, some of which are out to get us. And so we've been locked in relative reality ever since and yearning to get out and, and, and touch into absolute reality. And we have developed many ways to do that. All sorts of spiritual practices, prayer, meditation, sensory deprivation, vision quests, and of course the old standby booze and drugs and sex, they'll also get you there. Anything that gets us out of ourselves and uh, in, the, in the words of the, the 60 psychonauts, blows our minds. Travel, roller coasters, all of that. So we're always looking for something to take us out into the moment, actually. And so it's certainly no surprise that psychedelics can be used in psychotherapy. Uh, I, I might argue that psychedelics have been a very big part of my own mental health, actually. Uh, I have done maybe a dozen trips in all my life, and I don't think any for the last 20 years. Oh yeah, one. Uh, <laughs> all mushrooms. And I had tremendous insights. It, it, in, some, in some ways, it probably opened me up to spirit in my 20s. I was a committed atheists for, for atheist for most of my 20s. And I remember you know, the trips fairly well, uh, some of them very well. And, you know, what I noticed was that they can go either way. You know, you can, seeing the, the oneness, having a stable access to absolute reality is on one hand, such a relief that one of the side effects of, of mushrooms is giddiness and joy and humor and laughter. And I will never forget, I mean, how many times I was rolling on the floor laughing on mushrooms, but <laughs> perhaps the most memorable that really gets to the essence of things was a trip with my friend David back uh, probably 30 years ago, where we were both up in the mountains with some other people and looking around and he was just looking around and I was looking around and he said at one point, there's so many things to be at one with. And we thought that was so funny. I mean, we rolled around on the ground laughing for a half hour on that. So David, I know you occasionally listen to this. If you are, I remember that and it's so much fun. Uh, the other way it can go is bad. You can have a bad trip and I had a few. And this is where you see, this is another you know, aspect of joining absolute reality that you see the suffering of people that we put on ourselves and the futility of the ego projects that we saddle ourselves with. And it's so sad and um, it, it feels so hopeless. And that is true. The ego projects are hopeless, they all fall away. But the absolute eternal and infinite parts of us don't. So. If you see that uh, and you realize that that's like near-death near death experiences, people come back from, the, from them generally with less fear because we have had a direct experience of the part of ourselves that doesn't die and that can't be hurt. 
and we never can unsee that. And I'm very, very grateful to that. So, you know, this could be at the next stage of psychotherapy, as they pointed out in the article, the drugs we have now are, are you know, they'll be seen as fairly brutal in the future. Uh, and this may be a whole new ball game. So uh, I would also recommend if you're interested in this sort of thing that you could check out my episode that I did with Steve McIntosh, who's quite a psychonaut. And um, it's called The Spiritual Adventure of Psychedelics. And it's on the Daily of Oversight. All right. Okay, so the second thing I wanted to talk about a bit, and I want to show a couple clips, is I, I've mentioned John McWhorter a few times, and I have presented him because he's an anti-anti-racist. Okay, he's sort of the antithesis in this woke anti-racism thing that has been uh, presented by Ibram X. Kendi. He's sort of the their their ideological uh, opponents. And I would refer to him as a conservative because of that. And I have had many of you correct me on that. And I appreciate it because he's not a conservative. In fact, he describes himself as a cranky liberal, a Democrat voter, Democratic voter. And um, that sort of qualifies him. And this is why I've been interested in, in him uh, anyway, because he has that there's a proto-integral, proto-integral quality to that. Somebody who's fully steeped in green progressivism, but there's some part of it that is turning them off, that the, the, can't eat the whole meal anymore, and wants something more, feels politically homeless, is one of the ways he describes himself, and many more and more people do, and this is good news. So he was on Bill Maher uh, last week, and the Bill Maher is real time with Bill Maher, Bill Maher show on HBO. And Bill Maher is another one that's proto-integral because he is also a cranky liberal who's not eating the whole liberal meal anymore. And so they had a really good discussion. And I wanna play a couple parts from it because I think there's some integral lessons. Why else would I do that, right? Okay. All right. So here he is talking about Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is uh, the Bible of woke currently, that in the um, white fragility stuff. So he talks about both, but here he's talking about Kendi. So for example, if you're going to read How to Be an Anti-Racist, that is not the general black view of things. That should right. be read. It's like the Bible. That book, if you must read it, should be read as literature rather than as scholarship. That's not general. And yet we're told that somehow we have to accept these sorts of things as the black view. And you'll see it on Twitter. A black person will write on Twitter, you have to listen to the black people who are the real black people, the black people who black people listen to. No, no. There is a great deal of diversity in the black community. And I can tell you, it is not the default in the black community to think of ourselves as pathetic. All right. I, 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 I love that. I thought that was really good. Uh, and I also have a critique. Uh, wh what I like is it's a point that I've been making about woke and Kendi and all of that in general, is that if you look at it as being the, the Bible of a, of, a, of a stage of development, then you can see that as the, the Bible in um, the Christian Bible, 
which brought on the traditional stage of development, the blue amber stage of development. There are esoteric truths and there's exoteric truths. The ex exoteric truths are, you know, myth, basically. Fair enough. Myth has a place in the human psyche. And I, I, it was last week I, I critiqued uh, Kendi's article in The Atlantic where he talked about the police violence against Blacks and how oppressive it is and how he feels uh, relieved when he gets home from driving somewhere and he's safe. And, you know, if you look at the statistics, I, I, I trust that he's also relieved that he didn't get hit by an errant golf ball because there's about as much chance of him being killed by the cops as getting hit by a golf ball. So there's, you know, but the myth of it is not only true, but it accesses something that I talk about being the karmas of history, the othering of, of race, what still exists in the interior quadrants. You know, we get rid of, uh, we have anti-discrimination uh, laws that get rid, gets rid of discrimination and all of the legal structures in the right-hand quadrants that happened in the 60s, but there's still a change of heart that is in process. And actually it's happening pretty quickly. And uh, this woke has probably been online, really, if you think of where it was with academia. I was in the uh, graduate program 20 years ago, which was very woke. Uh, it's making great progress. And, but, and this is where I would disagree with McWhorter, is that, as he said, there's great diversity in the black community. There are uh, many people in the black community that don't buy that. They find that to be a victim uh, position and, and all of the things, all the critiques uh, that um, uh, McWhorter has of anti-racism. But there are also a lot of people for whom it is very informing and it really challenges them to look more deeply into other people and to see them beyond, um, you know, race and skin color. So I would like to embrace both of those and the people who see, feel both those ways. There's the so-called Martin Luther King stream and the Malcolm X stream in the black community. And to, you know, understand that and, and hold all of it uh, a little more uh, inclusively. All right, so then he and Bill go on with their conversation and they acknowledge that there is indeed racism and certainly social outcomes that need to be addressed in the uh, American culture. And, um, and then McWhorter goes on to explain that. And he talks about his ideas of change and how change happens it's easier to believe that change doesn't happen and in a way more tempting and more fun because you have a reason to get angry than to allow that change happen slowly and to watch it happen and to applaud. You're supposed to be happy that things change, but we're taught that the authentic black position is to present, pretend that it never does. Right. Yeah. So I love that because change is about evolution and that's, um, that's what, you know, it seems pretty obvious to me. So, and this is where exoteric woke is dead wrong. You know, the idea that it's worse now than it's ever been. Of course, they're gonna indulge that in a minute here too. So uh, I'll get to that. 
but I'm going to keep going. And he talks about the fruits of some of the change here in this next clip. In the 70s and 80s, Thinking America and Beyond learns that to be a racist is a terrible thing. And so everybody thinks that to be a racist is almost as bad as being a pedophile. In itself, that's great. Most people talk about not knowing history, don't understand that that's unprecedented in the whole 300,000 year history of the species that a society would come to that realization. Yay! <laughs> Yay, evolution. So yeah, I really like that point. And, uh, and then they get into, um, you know, what is, what is the, actually, I was going to say they get into what is the value of woke. They don't. They actually don't. Uh, at one point, McWhorter says he's not against woke, but he's against mean woke. I'd like him to unpack that first part a little bit more, where he's not against woke. So, you know, what, what does he see positive about woke? But mean woke for sure. You know, there's a totalitarian... Um, dimension to it. There's a totalitarian dimension to every stage of development, to every worldview. And there's a thought police and there's a cancel culture and they evolve through these stages. So um, he'll he describes that here now. And then Bill gets into how uh, things are worse than ever. So let me indulge them one more time here. So you have a whole group of people. It's not just woke people. I don't have a problem with woke. It's woke people who are mean. The woke people who are mean, if you don't do what they say, <laughs> right. they yeah. put you on social media and they say, you're a racist. And the problem is that most of us are deathly afraid of being called a racist on Twitter. All right. So here's Bill now talking about how it was better 10 or 20 years ago. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I feel like people, the Even race relationships were better yep. because... People were, first of all, they were intermarrying more, mixing more. Those, those taboos went away. Joking with each other more. How do people bond? They joke. They talk. And now we're all on eggshells. All right. Um, so I talked about the, the difference between woke and mean woke. Again, I wish McWhorter would expound a little bit more on the positive aspects of woke, uh, which is just this increasing consciousness. I felt it myself since Black Lives Matter. I felt it since Me Too, you know, seeing people for who they are instead of the surface features, so to speak. So with uh, Bill Maher's comment about race relations were better 10 or 20 years ago, this is tricky. Um, he talks about that people were intermarrying more and mixing more. Absolutely not true. Intermarrying way more. Uh, every, I don't know, year by year, but 10 years, 20 years ago, way more. Mixing at work, mixing in various situations, way more. But there's really two sides to, there, there, or there's two things that are revealed by uh, these analysis or polling. One is that if you ask people their views of race relations, they will say that race relations are worse than they used to be. Uh, the, the, the height of where people said race relations are good was right after Obama was elected. And now they're down again, I forget, I mean, 10, 12 points, something like that. In terms of questions like, would you be willing to marry or accept a person of another race into your family? The uh, attitudes are way better. Would you be willing to work with another pe person? Uh, how do you feel about the intelligence and capacities of people of different races? All much, much better. 
And that's a paradox of evolution. People tend to think that if things feel bad, they're getting worse. That's not true. Even if we look at our own lives and our relationships, the healthy relationships, we've gone through bad times and we became closer because of it. I have sometimes referred to a, a, a pattern that Scott Peck, the author of The Road Less Traveled, uh, identified in his book on community building and his foundation for community development that I was part of back in the day. And he said that the building of authentic community requires that people go through four stages. And it's really helpful here with race. One is pseudo community. That is where we all kind of think we're all good and everything's fine. And we can stay in pseudo community for a long time. In fact, with a lot of people, that's where we ought to stay because, you know, it works just fine to be in pseudo community unless you want a deeper intimacy. And then you have to move into conflict. And because inevitably there's going to be conflict. This, I, I don't approve of it. It's, uh, I, if I had designed the universe, I would have made it a lot nicer. But God decided to make it so that we fight our way forward. We friend our way forward too, but we fight our way forward. That's just part of the deal. So the second stage is conflict. That's when we the pseudo community breaks down. And then we fight with each other and we realize that we're not going to be able to win the other person over. We're not going to be able to um, beat them. We're going to have to live with them. We have to surrender to them in a way. And that brings on the third stage, which is emptiness. And this is when you abandon all hope. And it feels like I can't do anything to make this work. And so we have emptiness, which is actually a clearing away. This is a spiritual desert. There's actually a point in it. And then arising out of that is a new stage of development, a new uh, a stage of we space, and he calls it authentic community. So pseudo community, conflict, emptiness, and authentic community. And when Bill Maher talks about, we used to be able to joke with each other. Um, yes. And if push came to shove, uh, you needed to either back off, you know, if, if the, some of the conflicts inevitably that come up between piece of people of different races, between people of different anythings, you know, difference in sim sameness or popularity, difference is really important in evolution. So um, you can stay in a very, you know, f like I said, fun and rich pseudo community, but to get to authentic community, you need to go through the conflict and the emptiness. And I think that they're missing that, Bill, Bill is at least. So, um, so yeah, actually there is one other thing I would mention quickly, and that is that I was invited to a new social media platform called Clubhouse. And it's interesting. I, uh, it's it's a, a, a platform where you use your phone and it's all audio. And you go to these various basically conferences where there are people on stage and there are people in the audience and you can get on stage and you can get back to the audience and there's a whole protocol around it. But you listen to people and you can engage, ask questions, you can bring your point of view up, but they're moderated. Uh, con uh, conversations about all sorts of things. It's like Reddit, only audio. 
And there's an immediacy to it. There's an extra transmission because people are actually showing up and talking. You can see their little icons or their pictures. And in the last week, I spent a good bit of time just wandering around these various conversations. There's hundreds, if not thousands of them. It's growing very, very fast. And there's going to be a Twitter version. And there's a, this is the next social media. And I can see why. And what it does, the, 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 the one that I was on yesterday was about uh, what was going on with Israel in, in Palestine and the bombing and the whole story of it. And I don't really understand it deeply. You know, I read articles about it and I hear this pundit and that pundit. But I have to say, it was far more informative. I don't know if it was more informative, but it was a different kind of informative to hear people who were, you know, living in Israel, who were living in Palestine, who were the professor of this, who had this NGO. These are people who are in the mix and they are um, fighting it out with each other. And um, I would say that the room was moderated passably, I'd give it a B, <laughs> you know, but, um, and it could be moderated better. There's, I was in some rooms that were very, very well moderated, but even, you know, passable moderation was really interesting and really good because these people um, fought, you know, there's the one defending the Muslims, there's the one defending the Jews, there's, uh, but, but intelligently because they have to fight fair. And that is key. Um, so I'm interested in that. I just wanted to point that out. And I think that's a new emergent too. I'm not, I mean, I see the downsides of social media and I think social media is, has to clean up its act and it's going to be different uh, in the future as, as that act is cleaned up because there's too many cesspools. I get that. But, um, you know, we're even working that out. And this clubhouse, we'll see how it develops. But it was very promising. And I find myself reaching for my phone and, you know, what is it to be ugly? Um, uh, is the nuclear family a function of white supremacy? And this is moderated by this black guy in, in the UK and there's Africans and there's Americans and there's people all over the world who are opining on this. And in a way it's like, oh my God, what a cacophony. And are we ever going to be able to get it together? It's, it's actually, there's so much conflict that I want to move right into emptiness. It's like, I give up, you know. But I also see the fruit of it because these people are being tested and they're being argued with. And, you know, I remember growing up, nobody argued, everybody argued, but um, <laughs> not about this kind of thing. Everybody agreed in, in terms of ideology. Uh, it, growing up, but not anymore. And, um, and it's really, I think, fruitful to be, uh, you know, I, I, I often say that, you know, when we, we fight and friend our way forward, that if we look at the evolution of humanity, we fought, in, this is another integral map, but we fought in the physical level for most of history and now we're fighting in what we call the subtle level, which is the, uh, the realm of thought and energies and not physical. There's some happening there, but for the most part, our fighting is happening around ideologies. 
And that's progress because it's a lot less bloody um, unless you count psychic blood and there's plenty of that. All right. I think we're good for now. It's uh, always a pleasure to share what I'm thinking and love hearing back from you. You can write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. You can go to dailyevolver.com and hit the contact tab. And you'll see a little orange button where you can leave me a voicemail or you can send me a voicemail by email. Uh, I love hearing from you and uh, often use your comments in the episodes. So uh, uh, check in. All right. I think that's all for now. And um, so thank you for joining me. Jeff Salzman here. And we'll see you next week at the same time and same place. Bye, folks. <laughs>